Today, Michael sits down with Carl Valentine. Carl is a managing partner at PVW Partners in Townsville. Today, we'll deep dive into the federal budget that was handed down on Tuesday, the 9th of May. Welcome, Carl and Michael. Thank you very much for that introduction, Chantelle. And welcome, Carl Valentine, Managing Partner at PVW Partners in Townsville. And thank you once again for agreeing to share your insights into the first full federal labour budget since taking office in 2022 that was handed down by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers on Tuesday uh, earlier this week, the 9th of May. Thanks, Michael. I guess significantly... Um, it's also the first budget podcast that PBW Partners has done since becoming a corporate partner of the Townsville Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to start our, our new relationship, and I'm sure we'll continue to build on it from here. Mm. Oh, most definitely. And look, before we dip our toes into the budget pool and then take a deep dive into its murky depths, I wanted to just reflect briefly on the mid-year budget that was handed down in October 22. Uh, we noted back then that you know, rising inflation, interest rates and geopolitical events such as the Russian invasion of the Ukraine were causing the government to tread cautiously around making too many major policy shifts. And, and we'd noted things like that Townsville had you know, missed out on some previous uh, government commitments, uh, reversing the Hell's Gate Dam uh, water security commitment, um, scrapping of a 50 million safe, safer communities program and we, we didn't see any uh, fuel price relief. And there were a number of um, projects that were approved. Um, you know, do you think, Carl, that the, um, the government's caution back there in October was warranted? Well, with hindsight, which is always easier, it's quite interesting now to have reflected on the number of projects that were scrapped by the new government in October last year. Significantly for our region, it was water projects, the Hell's Gates Dam, previously promised under the former government, taken away in the October budget last year. What's particularly interesting is that the budget handed down earlier this week has not really announced any new infrastructure projects. So the projects that were cancelled October last year haven't been replaced by new ones. And it would suggest the government is struggling a little bit to find a vision for infrastructure projects in our country. Do you think that reflects sort of ongoing caution, a cautionary approach that they're not quite too sure how the geopolitical impacts, uh, you know, or, or matters are going to impact on Australia, or is it? A, and and of course, you know, they've returned a budget surplus, which yeah, is quite historic. I think part of it reflects this government's preference to share funds with different parts of our economy. So rather than reinvesting in infrastructure projects, which are good for our long-term success. A lot of the funding has been reallocated would seem to lower income earners to help them with cost of living issues at the moment, uh, which is a little bit of a concern because infrastructure projects are there for the long term, whereas money that's flowing to individuals is more likely to be spent quickly and could well be more inflationary pressures in our economy compared to the longer term slow burn of an infrastructure project. Yeah, I think the Treasurer was proud of the fact that 80% of the extra revenues had been returned back to you know people and, and services. Um, so, yes. So what do you see as the other main features of, I think it was over 1,000 pages in the, in the budget? Um, and do you think they were, you know, what do you think the focus is going to be moving forward in that, in that new budget? Yeah, look, certainly the focus was on cost of living and the Treasurer mm. made no bones about that. He was very clear that he was trying to help people who were struggling with high everyday costs, whether that's housing, 
electricity, healthcare, uh, trying to address shortages in wages in certain sectors as well. Uh, but a lot of, as I was saying, a lot of the spending is just focused on individuals and mm. helping people with day-to-day living costs. While the Treasurer was quite confident that the $14.6 billion of cost of living measures would not be inflationary, I really am struggling to see how that won't be the case. Uh, the budget, yeah, collected a lot more revenue, but it also spent a lot money, more money than was originally planned as well. Mm. So a surplus was delivered, but that surplus was on top of higher spending still and higher collections. Mm. And, and a surplus uh, the first time, I think, in 15 years. And, and ironically, another Labor government, I think under Kevin Rudd's uh, leadership, also provided a surplus uh, in the budget. Uh, but, of course, that's a projected one. I think we've seen some of the slides that say mm. this is what the projected result is and here's the actual result. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah. I think we're pretty safe on this one because there's mm. really only seven weeks to the end of the financial year. So <laughs> it would be <laughs> especially <laughs> problematic if we've got this one wrong. If they get this one wrong, I think, yeah, I think they might have to sack the entire economics and treasury and the whole the whole shebang. Um, so what do you see then as some of the specific measures that, Townsville might directly benefit from out of the budget, Carl? Yeah. Townsville wasn't unique in not seeing a lot of direct measures announced for our geographic region. Uh, It was nice to see Cairns was awarded some funding for their uh, Navy services industries, their waterfront development. Uh, But beyond some of the announcements specifically for Cairns, for Brisbane for the Olympics and a stadium for Hobart, there really wasn't any major infrastructure announcements that were directed at any one city. So while I know some people in Townsville are disappointed that things weren't announced specifically for us, I don't think we should feel hard done by. We are the same as most of Australia in that. There were things in the budget that will indirectly benefit us over time. How that will play out, though, is not particularly clear right now. Uh, We know that while there might be some short-term cuts to defence spending in our region, longer term the plan is to reinvest in defence heavily. Mm. So I think that will come back to us. The green energy revolution, Mm. again, not clear where that money is going to end up. It was just invested in buckets. Uh, I think Townsville, through advocacy, through groups like the Chamber and Townsville Enterprise, will see some of that money come home here if we can provide a compelling value proposition for those funds to be invested in our region. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that Townsville has the potential to become this renewable powerhouse that um, um, we would all like it to be. And I guess, th- disappointingly, though, the budget didn't address some of the other crisis issues, uh, particularly for the local region in terms of housing and, and skilled uh, workers. Um, those things have to be addressed, and if they can't be addressed, then it will actually force some of those potential projects to go elsewhere. Yeah, we've certainly got some constraints in our economy at the moment. Uh, availability of labour and places for a larger labour force to live Mm. are real limitations on what our economy can do. Mm. Uh, We have seen in our recent business confidence survey that businesses look like they are pulling back a bit on investment and it would suggest to us that we're coming to the end of a cycle of growth, uh, not necessarily because the opportunities aren't there still, but because there are constraints to businesses continuing to grow. Mm. Uh, They can't employ more people if their people aren't available in the market to employ. Mm. We can't bring more people to town unless there's places for them to live. Um, So the economy needs a bit of spare capacity in in labour and places for people to live to grow from here. Mm. 
And the other um, significant thing, particularly for small business, um, small to medium, is the asset write-off um, provisions, which I think went up to 125000 or thereabouts previously, or possibly even unlimited, mm. and now have been sort of replaced by a $20,000. Yeah, the, the depreciation of assets has been a, a moving feast for quite a number of years now. And both sides of politics have failed to implement a permanent solution to how businesses depreciate their assets. Uh, it's something we'd love to see made a permanent feature. So mm. the $20,000 instant asset write-off that applies for the next financial year from 1 July 23 is very much back to the future. That was the rule in play before COVID. The COVID concession saw higher levels of write-off. It did start at 150 mm. and then it went to an unlimited amount. Uh, as long as your business turned over less than $5 billion, which is almost everyone nice. around here. Nice. Uh, you could then write off the full value of that equipment. And that has been a wonderful shot in the arm for regional businesses here, that to some degree, those asset write-offs have given them a bit of an income tax holiday. And that's given them extra capital on top of JobKeeper money, if we go back a few years, to provide not only working capital in their businesses, but also a good sense of comfort and confidence that they've got cash in the bank, they can take on more people and they can grow with the ending of the full expensing of assets, we're going to see a lot of businesses that will slow down investment even further, but mm. will have tax bills in the year to come. Mm. Um, that was the point I was probably going to pick up on, is that that's one of the dangers, I suppose, of getting that upfront tax advantage, is mm. that the next couple of years, when that expense that you otherwise would have had to offset your income isn't there, uh, hopefully you've planned to put away some of that extra benefit if you like um, and to make sure it matches that that income in the future absolutely period. yeah and it highlights the importance of working closely with a tax advisor like pvw partners to make sure you stay ahead of that and that you are planning and providing for those bigger tax bills that are likely to come mm. and of course all of that planning should occur before the 30th of june it should be <laughs> happening right now right now <laughs> so you get the full benefit of it um do you believe the government is taking an appropriately cautious and responsible approach um, by aiming for this small surplus? Or perhaps, you know, um, should they have taken this opportunity, a rare opportunity, uh, with potentially a surplus, um, to address some of the structural deficiencies? Yeah. Um, you know, such as we've often talked about, the taxation system needs quite a bit of an overhaul. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, do you think this is a lost opportunity or, or good sense um, uh, management? I do see it as a lost opportunity, but... I am also acutely aware of the political pressures on any government to continue to provide public services, mm. to continue help out those who do need assistance, particularly while inflation recently peaking at 7.8% is putting genuine pressure on a lot of households. Having said that, I do think our federal governments need to be more courageous than they have been. And they do seem quite happy to give in to short-term pressures mm at the cost of long-term gains for our economy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that does seem to be the case. Everything seems to be getting shorter and shorter term. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing to do with the three- and four-year election cycles that we go through. I'm sure it's just their strategy. Um, turning then to the white elephant in the room on the budget night was, was the fact that there was just no mention of the stage three income tax cuts. Mm -hmm. I think a journalist tried to prompt uh, a question out of that and they said well look that's that's something we, we're mindful of and we'll address it at a later point in time mm. I remember seeing a survey of the people who were saying will the tax cuts be taken out this budget will they be taken out the next budget or will in fact they actually go through 
Um, and I think the graph I saw was surprisingly quite equal um, in thinking, but in mm. my thinking, they're going. Uh, it's just a case of when and probably in the next budget. But yeah, your thoughts? Yeah, I do think the stage three tax cuts are a really important tax reform measure and should be retained. Mm. I think it's unfortunate of how it's being messaged. And the common refrain is that high income earners are gonna receive the highest benefit. That is true in terms of dollar terms. But I think if you look at it in terms of percent of tax they're actually paying and contributing, mm. it's a much closer ball game. Mm. Uh, it does make sense to me that our small, small and middle income earners should be able to benefit from higher levels of tax cuts simply because they're paying the most tax. Mm. Uh, and so just in simple terms, those stage three tax cuts are effectively meaning um, a person could earn up to, I think it's about 180000 190000 and basically on that lowest rate of tax. Not quite the lowest rate of tax, no. but what it will do, it will put all taxpayers who are earning between 45000 and $200,000 mm. on the same tax rate, mm. and that's a 30% tax rate. From a taxation policy perspective, that's actually a really good tax rate because that's the same as the company tax rate. For, for larger companies, 25% for smaller companies. Trying to tax individuals and companies at around the same tax rate makes a lot of sense because then for all our small and middle-sized businesses around Townsville, it helps the owners of those businesses manage their personal incomes and their business profits in, in quite a simpler way. It reduces the incentive to actually try and shift profits. To divert monies into divert other monies into different vehicles. vehicles. Yep. So. Mm. It creates a level playing field from that perspective. Mm. The other challenge I think we have with the stage three tax cuts is that, yeah, it does deliver the same level of tax benefit whether you're earning $200,000 or a million dollars. There would be some simple changes you could make to the stage three tax cuts that we've been talking about at PVW Partners mm. to override that benefit. Mm. So all the government of the day would need to do is to increase the rate of tax on income over $200,000 so that you could actually eliminate the benefit for anyone earning a million dollars. And thereby just creating a benefit for those people earning up to that amount of up money. Up to that yeah. amount. Yeah. And uh, I think the, the other challenge with the debate is that you're perceived as being ultra wealthy if you're earning $200,000. And don't get me wrong, I know that you're doing pretty well if you're earning $200,000. But if you're a single income household, with mm. one person earning $200,000. $200,000 for household income, servicing mortgages, healthcare needs, school fees, it's not that much money in the real world. So I think we need to get away from the perception that it's only benefiting rich people. We could, as we've just said, we could take steps to stop it benefiting the ultra wealthy, but still preserve the benefit for our local business owners who aren't really taking that much out of their businesses and still keeping families going. Mm. And it looks like the government will have 12 months to have a think about some of those issues and, yeah. and indeed the pressures um, around uh, funding whatever's happening in the economy. And uh, they'll obviously make a final decision as to whether those stage cuts go through and they've got until 1 July next year effectively to yeah. support them or knock them on the head. Yeah, and I think it'd, it'd be an absolute travesty if the government decided to eliminate those tax cuts without considering how what's currently law could be amended to deliver a little bit more of an equitable outcome. They mm. don't have to remain in their current form. They could still be introduced with some modifications mm. so we still get 
the benefits of the stage three tax cuts. We overcome bracket creep. Mm. We actually reduce the impost on the individuals who are actually doing the real heavy lifting in our economy. Mm, and reduce that benefit that otherwise would accrue to this category called the rich people, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> earning over 200000 Um, Carl, when we look at some of the indicators of uh, economic growth and, and the four areas that everyone loves to look at are GDP, uh, inflation, wages and unemployment, when you look at the uh, projections that happened in October as to what was potentially going to happen to those, I guess the forward estimates of those numbers, They've largely stayed the same, although uh, the government is now projecting um, you know, inflation to be around 6%. And I think that's off the back of the inflation being a bit more stubborn to, to get down. We obviously had a, a loss, a situation where the RBA decided to pause the interest rate increases just to see the impacts and effects that are flowing through. And whilst there was a small reduction in inflation, it caused them then to reintroduce the next rate increase. Um, yeah, what's, uh, and I suppose the other thing in, in, in unemployment terms, again, they're projecting at the end of this year that it's at 3.5, not 3.75. And the following year projection uh, down from 4.5 to 4.25. So there's some interesting, uh, I suppose, measures at play there. And, you know, those projections probably suggest still a stubborn inflation rate, but amazingly dropping off in subsequent years. Um, from 6% to 3.25 down to 2.75. Does this suggest to you that the interest rates are likely to continue to rise in coming months and possibly next year, or how else do you think that inflation will be brought under control? Yeah, my, my own view is it's going to be very difficult for the Reserve Bank to ignore some of the budget measures that are likely to create additional pressures on inflation. So I wouldn't be surprised if as a result of the budget, the Reserve Bank does look to increase interest rates again further and to do that fairly soon. I think the Reserve Bank is still feeling quite sensitive to a lot of the criticism that it didn't act quickly enough when inflation did start to ramp up. Mm. By the time inflation was already over 5%, the Reserve Bank hadn't actually started increasing interest rates. So it's kind of like the the cult from old regret. It had already got away before Mm. the bank started doing anything about it. So... Mm. I think the Reserve Bank will probably be quite conservative in its approach now and would react to what the government's done and look to increase interest rates again. Mm. Unfortunately, I think that's almost inevitable, isn't it? Yeah. Counteracting that, though, is the forecasts around unemployment levels. And the economic theory is that you actually need a a certain level of unemployment Mm. to take heat out of costs for businesses. When you've got really low levels of unemployment, that puts increased pressure on wages and what the labour force is demanding from employers for wages. Mm. It's unfortunate if unemployment does go up, because on those numbers, that's about 100,000 people who are in work now who are forecast to be out of work. So if those people all want to be in work, then higher unemployment's a really unfortunate outcome. Mm. But it does potentially help businesses, because businesses can't find the people they want now, and they're paying more for the people they would like to get because of that shortage. Mm. So... They do go hand in hand, and we might see some lessening of inflationary pressures if that unemployment does creep up slightly again. Uh, But let's also not lose perspective. It's been a long time since unemployment was this low. Mm. Uh, They're incredibly low levels, and I think even if they do go back up to 4 to 5%, 
that's still, from an economic perspective, sustainable for us as an economy and, and maybe a fairly healthy level of unemployment. Mm. And I guess off the back of high employment uh, comes the demand for um, increased wages. And we know there's been a call for almost, well, quite a period now where there's been a separation between the level of inflation and, and the increase of wages. Uh, and obviously industrial um, organisations looking for some parity there. Uh, we do know there's been some uh, minor corrections, um, such as the um, aged care uh, wage deficiency, which was addressed through, I think, the Industrial Relations Commission, um, where they made a ruling that they wanted the government to increase those wages by 15%. I think the government was keen to try and split that to 5 and 10, but in the end there was a lot of pressure brought to bear to to bring it into fruition straight away, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a wages point of view, um, do you see that there might be additional pressure which could convert into industrial action to try and move the wages levels up? It's possible. Uh, a data point I would love to see is private sector wage growth versus public sector wage growth. And award-based wages growth versus non-award-based wages growth. The experience we've seen across our client base in the private sector is that wages have been growing at a rate substantially higher than inflation for the last couple of years. Mm. And yet in government and award negotiations, Mm. they seem to be capping wages growth below the rate of inflation. So it does feel like there's a two-speed wage economy here that Mm. we've got. So it'd be interesting to see that dissected because while the government's talking about the need for wages growth, actually within the public sector itself, we're probably not seeing it that much. No, and I think as we know in the public sector, they're fairly constrained around things like loadings and market prices and all of that and even uh, promotions, etc. Mm. Whereas in the private sector, of course, you can you can pay that extra money for a, a loading, um, you can promote people early, you can give them bonuses, you can do all sorts of things mm. uh, within that uh, private um, sort of profile, I guess. Um, so yes, it'll be interesting to see where that ends up. Um, and I guess the other thing that we don't look at too often in the budget, we just assume it's there, Carl, is the revenue side of things. Mm-hmm. And um, and we often just focus on the planned expenditures. Um, and I guess there appears to be a belief that um, you know such things as income taxpayers through high employment will end up kicking in a lot more money into the budget. Uh, but then there's also uh, the mineral exports or um, the very buoyant commodity prices at the moment. I think all of that's going to generate multiple um, dollars. Of, I think it was $90 billion at one stage, but I'm not too sure whether that was just yeah. one component of the lot. Um, but do you think a more conservative approach maybe, again, should have been taken in relation to the revenue side of things uh, rather than just counting that all in as a, yeah. as a given? So I think it was about $90 billion of additional revenue across the mm. revenue base for the federal government. Uh, about $65 billion of that $90 billion was from individual taxpayers. That's you and me, Carl. That's you and me and all our friends around town. It's a combination of high levels of employment, so close to Mm. full employment, well, that's great. There's going to be more income generated through pay-as-you-go withholding Mm. and also the wages growth we have seen. So that is a good news story. But the government should not rely only on the efforts of individuals to raise taxation revenue. And this is where things like the stage three tax cuts are an important adjustment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wages growth brings in bracket creep. So what you would consider to be lower income families are pushing into higher tax brackets simply because their wages are growing. 
so a component is because of bracket creep. So that's one of the reasons why we need the stage three tax cuts to be retained. Bigger picture issue here is that taxing individuals at higher and higher rates doesn't actually lead to long-term benefits because you end up with individuals opting out of the workforce at a point mm. or deciding to work less. And this is one of the reasons for, uh, or one of the arguments in favour of the need for broad-based tax reform, mm. that if you can actually change the tax system to remove some of the disincentives for things like working more and investing more units of labour in the economy, you then look at taxing things like consumption through the GST. So very politically unpopular to reduce taxes for some people but put up the tax on consumption by the GST rate, applying that to everybody. But that would actually be a really positive thing for our economy and take the handbrake off and the reliance on individuals for taxation revenues and businesses. Mm. And I noticed another source of revenue, if you like, is uh, increased compliance uh, checking, you know, and making sure people are paying their taxes, paying GST, which is another one. Absolutely. Um, some of those compliance issues, um, yeah, um, to generate big money. Yeah. It's uh, an interesting phenomena. I think it's a cultural phenomena in Australia that, well, if I can get away with paying less tax, I will. Uh but time and time again, the government has shown by investing more in the ATO's compliance programs, there's a very healthy dividend that comes back. Mm. Our economy probably would be in better shape if everyone just did the right thing and paid the amount of tax they were meant to pay. For sure, businesses and individuals should be able to legitimately plan their taxes and take legitimate steps to minimise their taxes. But we've got a large number of taxpayers who are choosing to ignore their tax obligations and I think it's a very healthy thing that the ATO is going to enforce compliance. Mm. Uh, we've got workers missing out on super because employers are, are simply choosing not to pay it. Uh, if mm. not pay it on time, then pay it at all. Mm. And uh, it's quite a sad thing that you look at the statistics on businesses being wound up in Australia. Invariably, their largest creditor is the tax office. Mm. The tax man is the last one to get paid. Uh, and I think the ATO probably has a role to play in stepping in a little bit sooner and not letting its own debts build up that much because that just costs you and I as taxpayers in the mm. long run. Mm. And exactly right. Um, and uh, wages at the end of the day, including the tax, is, a, is an employer-funded um, cost and obviously a benefit. Now, the final question, um, Carl, uh, as a good accountant, a good accountants, we should not only be looking at our profit and losses, our incomes and expenses, but the balance sheet. And the biggest thing that stands out, of course, is the debt. Mm -hmm. And the Australian debt is growing. The projections were would continue to grow. And that means interest associated with that will continue to grow, particularly mm -hmm. as a percentage, I think, is overall of GDP. Um, are you comfortable with the fact the government haven't put any strategies in place to deal with that, I'll say it a problem, but mm. with that issue? Yeah, and the level of debt is one of the uh, favoured political footballs in Australia that uh, mm. government seems to more, spend more time discussing with the opposition who actually accumulated the debt than either side of politics trying to do something about it. Yep. The debt, as per the, the Ford estimates in the budget papers, gross debt is still going to exceed a trillion dollars within the next five years. So it would suggest, despite today's government being quite happy to blame the previous government for the accumulation of debt, they're not actively taking steps to rein it in. And nor necessarily were the previous government. They're, the Ford estimates haven't changed too much. Mm -hmm. So it w I would have thought, on the back of very strong revenue collections, there was an opportunity 
to retire some more debt than has been the case. At some point, our friends in Canberra are going to have to make a very hard decision around deferring current spending in favour of genuine budget repair. Debt reduction, um, yes. Mm. And, and there's things we need to spend money on as a country. Um, the nuclear submarines, missile defence systems, mm. we seem to have decided that they're important things to fund. My interpretation of the budget data is we're just going to borrow money to fund those. We're mm. not going to try and fund them out of recurring revenues. Mm. Uh, so a balance needs to be struck there between current spending and future infrastructure needs. Mm. And, and look, we do know a, a large chunk of that debt was uh, accumulated during COVID times. I think everyone just, not so much turned a blind eye, but expected the government to do what it had to do to try and protect as many people. Um, but certainly from my point of view, there was almost an expectation that there was going to be some pain down the end. It wasn't something we would just kick down the road and mm. let our kids pick up. Uh, we just expected there's going to be some tight, tough times. Mm-hmm. Um, but doesn't seem to be reflected in um, you know the the budgeting necessary. There was no specific thing to say, folks, here's this, you know, we, let's even address the COVID part mm. of the debt. Uh, there was nothing. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, it's a challenge for me as a business owner. And one of the key things I love doing as a business owner is not only running a good business, but making sure I manage my debt in a sensible way, ultimately with a view to paying it out. The government and I don't know if it permeates to Treasury and other parts of the bureaucracy, they don't seem to feel the same urgency. Uh, our debt, by international standards, still isn't ridiculously high. So an economist could well argue that there's scope for more debt, and it's not bad because it's below a certain level of GDP. Mm. Uh, I think if I was sitting in the Treasurer's chair, I'd be feeling a level of discomfort about the level of debt and try to balance all the competing demands to have a strategy in place to reduce that debt in a meaningful period of time. Mm. But fortunately, we live in the lucky country, and so we tend to just sit back and take things as they, you know, as they are. And yeah, very fortunate. Well, Carl, thank you very, very, very much for um, participating in our podcast. No doubt there'll be a mini budget announcement <laughs> probably in October. Um, hopefully not. Um, and uh, we may well be talking to you again so thank you very much thanks Michael I'd be very happy not to talk to you about another budget until May next year (laughs) I agree thank you thank you Carl that was very interesting and some great information the Townsville Chamber would like to thank their corporate partners Star 106.3 James Cook University and PVW Partners. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and listen to all of our chamber casts.